In Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, it says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from the wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You know, I remember on June 2nd, 1985, this is the day that I came to faith in Christ. I'd been going to church for about a year and a half before that, learning some things, but never really made the connection with myself. Didn't understand that I needed Jesus Christ to die for me and to be my Savior. Otherwise, I'd be lost without Him. But that day, I remember that I put my faith in Christ. Afterwards, I was excited. I still remember today that feeling. I just felt almost walking on air, just kind of light. I knew that my sins were lifted, that my penalty was gone. And I was super excited about it. It was a warm, sunny day. And straight across from our apartment, it was our neighbors that had started going to church with us at that church also. And he had gone forward that morning also. And we were talking about how excited we were about this salvation. And I said, you know, I said, such a nice day. And I'm just so excited about what happened. I just want to do something. I want to, be, I want to do something active. We weren't sure what to do. And so, you know, what we came up with is we went across the street. There was a middle school. And out in the field of that middle school, we played uh, flyers up. You remember that? Okay, guy gets to keep hitting a softball until somebody catches it, and then they get to be the one to hit. And there was just a few of us playing out there. And so anyway, at one point, somebody was batting the ball. And myself and my neighbor were both out in the field. And the ball got hit, and it was uh, hit pretty far, and we're both running for the ball. And he's about three steps in front of me, closer to the batter, and we're both running across the field. And he reached up for it, and I saw his glove go up, and I thought, he's got it. I dropped my glove, and I dropped my glove. He missed it, and it just drilled me and knocked me right to the ground. And I hit the ground, and I swore. And I was crushed. I thought, I I I just got saved. I just experienced forgiveness for all of my sins, what, two hours ago? And I get hit by a baseball. I've been hit by baseballs before. Been hit, get hit by a baseball, that's it. And it causes me to use language like that. And I just felt horrible. I couldn't believe that so soon from for being forgiven of my sins that I would participate in them again. Well, the reason that I bring that up is not for just for my own humiliation, but because I also see it within the life of Noah. Here we've got Noah. Noah's a far better guy than I was. Noah's the guy that just got rescued in the flood. Noah's the guy that God said, you know what, I'm going to destroy the whole world because of its wickedness, except for Noah and his family. In fact, Noah, if you look in Ezekiel, is listed as kind of one of the top three. When God is pronouncing judgment in the days of Ezekiel, He said, look, even if Job, Noah, and Daniel were in this city, I would still destroy it, except I would pull those three out. But they would save only themselves. But then we hit this passage and we say, what in the world is going on? 
In fact, you know what? The commentators agree with you. Many of the commentators say this is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. What do we do with this? How do we understand this? Well, you know what? That always takes us by surprise. When somebody that's maybe in Christian ministry or Christian leadership falls into a particular sin, we're always confused. How did that happen? Somebody that seemed to be living for the Lord so strongly, how did they fall into that sin? That's what we're going to consider this morning is when the righteous fall. Because we see Noah, this righteous person, but he definitely falls into sin. Now, as we look at this, we're going to answer the question, what happened? And then the second thing we're going to ask is, what does it mean? How does it apply to my life? The first question, what happened? What do we do with Noah? Is he really righteous? God said he was righteous. That's why he delivered him from the flood. Yet we see him participate in this drunkenness and nakedness. How do we get our minds around that? Some people just kind of throw Noah under the bus. I listened to part of a sermon by a guy yesterday that said Noah was a righteous man for 600 years of his life. And then he walked away from God and was an apostate and a drunk and sexual immorality. I don't think so. That's definitely going to one extreme. The Jewish Talmud says Noah was righteous, but only in comparison to the wicked people that he was living with prior to the flood. And so he just shined by comparison. I don't think that's the right answer either. Others go to great lengths to give him the benefit of the doubt. Some have taught that Noah planted this vineyard, harvested the the grapes and made the wine, and purposely got drunk so that he would know better what it was like so that he could warn the rest of the world more accurately about the evils associated with it. He did not purposely go out and get drunk with some righteous endeavor to do a wrong thing in order to be able to warn people of the evil in it. I don't think we can get around the fact that Noah did something very wrong and shameful. And I also don't think that we can make excuses for him either. He did it. That's part of this broken world that we live in. We're broken people living in a broken world. And if we're going to have heroes, our heroes are going to have chinks in the armor. In fact, as you look through the Bible, you'll find it. Moses would be kept out of the promised land because of his disobedience toward God in striking the rock. David would have the adultery of Bathsheba and having her husband put to death with the murder of her husband Uriah. There are very few heroes in the Bible that we read about where we see their strengths, we don't also see their weaknesses. amazing thing about the Bible is it, it gives you the weaknesses of its heroes as well as the strengths. There is a possibility, a slight possibility, if you look at the change in the environment after the flood, if there was that canopy of water up there and that came down, then the fermentation of grapes would have happened much more quickly after the flood than it did before the flood. So he might have been caught off guard in the drinking of the wine. I I don't know. Some of the things I don't know about is part of it would depend on the timing. Because notice he says, curse be Canaan. So if he's cursing Canaan over it, then it seems that some time has gone by. This isn't a new phenomenon. Some time has happened from the time they got off the boat, planted the vineyard, in between that and when Noah gets drunk and has this experience. So I don't know that that could have caught him off guard. So what about Noah? Well, I think we've got a chink in the armor here. I think we've got a hero that's, that's fallen, at least, for, at least for a time being. Falling for a time being does not mean you're fallen forever. I think of David with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He gets restored. The Bible says a righteous man falls down seven times and he gets back up again. And I think that's one of the indications of a real relationship with, with God in your life and with Christ in your life is that when you do fall, you get back up and you recover and you overcome it. Walking with God doesn't mean you never fall into sin. It just means you're never kept down forever. And so what do we do with righteous Noah? I think we have to recognize that he's still righteous Noah, that he's that righteous person. 
that was delivered from the flood and blessed after the flood. He's that righteous person that later on the Bible would point to and say, look, this is a very righteous person. But at the same time, we cannot excuse the sin of that moment in his life either. So under this question of what exactly happened, we look at Noah and what happened? Well, he he drank, he got drunk, he became exposed. Cursed be Canaan. What is the deal with that? Ham is the one that somehow he comes across his father. I don't know if he heard his father in the tent. I don't know why he went to his father's tent and looked into his tent. There's a lot of speculation out on that too. Some, some of the speculation is very horrendous and some less. But I think that we just got to stick with what the Bible tells us is that he was uncovered in his tent. Obviously he was in the privacy of his own tent, but his son Ham came and saw the nakedness of his father and his son Ham responded very disrespectfully. He responded in mockery. He responded in ridicule. You know, you think about who this is. This is his father. And when Ham sees the weakness of his father, rather than being concerned for his father, caring for his father, respecting his father by covering him up, he tries to spread the ridicule. And so he goes out and he tells his brothers about the condition of his father. I'm sure expecting them to come and and ridicule and laugh at the condition of their father as well. They treat him with respect. They don't look in to see the condition that he's in. And they take his a garment and they put it across their shoulders between the two of them so they can back up over the top of him and drop it on him without seeing his condition. You know, the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's basically what they did at this point. In love, they, they covered their father's transgression. There's something much greater that's going on in this passage than maybe we first catch at the very beginning. It would do us well to remember the context that this is written in. Remember who wrote this? Moses. Now Moses is living in a different time period than Noah and his three sons. It's considerably later. Now what's going on in Moses' time period? He's delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they're going to go into the promised land. And who's in the promised land? The Canaanites. The descendants of Canaan. This curse has to do very directly with the time that Moses is living in. The Canaanites are in the promised land. And what has happened is exactly what we see the beginning of it in the curse of Canaan, and we see the fruition of it during Moses' day. God sent the children of Israel into Egypt where they would be captive for 400 years. Why 400 years? The Bible tells us 400 years because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. They were part of that group, the Canaanites, that were in the the land. They were part of the descendants of Canaan. And so God is waiting, giving them opportunity, giving them time. And they don't repent. They don't change their ways. And so finally, 400 years later, God sends Moses into Egypt to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and to lead them to the land of Canaan where they will go in and repossess the promised land that God had given centuries before to Abraham. And so as he brings them to conquer Canaan, what is the land of Canaan like? Well, if you read through Leviticus, I think chapter 18 and uh, 28, read through different passages, God is telling Israel, the Canaanites are so horrible that the land is going to vomit them out of the land. And he's warning the Israelites. He tells them, do not, when you get to the land, do not participate in the things that they're participating in, or the land will vomit you out too. And then God lists all these commands. You don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't do this. 
And the list is horrendous. The list of things that they're participating in, and they focus mostly on sexual behaviors. And they deal with adultery and fornication and incest and homosexuality and even worse. And he says, don't do these things that the people there are doing and have been doing for a long time. And that's exactly why they're about to be wiped out and you're going to come in and possess the land. When Moses would write down the book of Genesis for the Israelites, when they would read this, cursed be Canaan, their minds are going to be full of a picture of what Canaan has become. Canaan has become this land that is so vile that the activities of these people are so wicked, are so sinful, that God will destroy them. And where did it all start? Back with Ham's actions. Why is the curse pronounced on Canaan instead of Ham? Why not judge Ham? He's the one that ridiculed his father's nakedness. Well, some people, and I'm not sure what I think about this exactly, some people think, well, he, wasn't, he couldn't have cursed Ham because they think Ham was a believer. And the reason that they think that is because, one, Ham was rescued through the flood. We're rescued not based on the faith of our fathers, but on our faith. And so Ham, being rescued also from the flood, must have been somebody that was a believer. The other line of reasoning goes, when you look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, God blessed Noah and the sons of Noah. And so uh, this blessing had already been pronounced upon the sons of Noah. So how do you curse somebody that God blesses? You couldn't curse Ham because he's already under the blessing of God. And so he cursed the next in line, which would be Canaan. And at this point even, uh, Ham has four sons, Canaan just being one of them. And so actually the people that would come along much later and use this as an excuse of why African people became slaves really has nothing to do with it. Those were descended from other sons of Ham's, not from Canaan. So the, the fulfillment of Canaan becoming a servant to his brothers happens later when Israel comes in and takes over the land. That's when that curse is fulfilled upon Canaan and that blessing is fulfilled on Shem and Japheth. What is the curse upon Canaan? Uh, to do that, I think what we have to do is we have to recognize that this is talking about a much bigger picture than just the individual Canaan. It's talking about all of his descendants and a, a large group of people. Alan P. Ross wrote in The Curse of Canaan, because these sons were primogenitors of the families of the earth, the narrator is more interested in the greater meaning of the oracle with respect to the tribes and nations in his day than with the children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You see, he's saying that when Moses wrote this, it was at the time that Canaan was not just a person, it was a nation. It was tribes of people that the Israelites would be forced to come up against as their enemies. And it was in the promised land that was given to them. And so that's who they're concerned with. Not the individual, but with the nation. So the oracle of Noah, far from being concerned simply with the fortunes of the immediate family, actually pertains to vast movements of ancient peoples, And we actually see that in the context of Genesis also, because when we get into chapter 10, it's going to start going through the genealogies, where the people descended into, the nations that they become, and getting finally at the end of chapter 10, being divided into the nations because of the Tower of Babel. Portraying their tendencies as originating in individual ancestors, the Book of Beginnings anticipates the expected destinies of these tribes and nations. Moses in his time is looking at the bigger picture. The time that he's writing about during the time of Noah is the smaller picture, Canaan, Ham, Japheth, Shem. But he's showing the connection 
the look of the wickedness of these Canaanites, we saw it all the way back in their ancestor Ham. We saw it in his actions. Noah must have seen within Canaan the same kind of character, the same kind of a thirst for that which is wicked that Ham is modeling through his behavior at that point. And I think that's why Noah pronounces that curse upon Canaan. I think he's recognizing within Canaan the corrupt, sinful desires that are being flushed out in his father Ham. And Noah points to that in Canaan and pronounces this oracle or this curse. And then that would continue in their line, as is often the case. Right? Often children follow in their parents' footsteps. The things that they see their parents participate in, they end up participating in as well. That's why we have sayings like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. and So it's not uncommon to find something in an ancestor, a, a trait that you find also down the road has become bigger in their family. I remember seeing a story on that one time. I think it was Jonathan Edwards. They looked through his family tree and it had an incredible amount of preachers in it. A godly line of believers. And I wish I could remember who the other person was. I racked my brain a little bit this weekend and I couldn't think of it. But they compared him to the lineage of somebody else that was a notorious criminal. And they went through their family tree and you know what they found? A whole host of notorious criminals. We tend to reproduce ourselves. Doesn't mean that they can't be overcome. When you look at Canaan, look at Rahab. Rahab got forgiven and delivered out of Canaan because she repented of the ways of her people that she lived among and ended up even in the lineage of Christ. So it doesn't mean it can't be overcome. But, you know, we do our children a great disservice when we walk in sin because it uh, helps to encourage them to walk in the same sins. Alan P. Ross said about the situation, he says, being enslaved by their vices... The Canaanites were to be enslaved by others. This subjugation, effected through divine intervention, is just the moral abandon of Ham ran its course in his descendants. The character that we see in Ham ended up modeled and even extended. I remember taking, uh, reading a book on parenting one time, and it said what the parents will uh, do in moderation, the children will do in excess. So as we're raising our families and our children, we need to be careful of the things that we participate in. Because it can affect the generations to come. Because our children seem to tend to end up being inclined to the same sins and the same weaknesses that we do. Well, what does it mean? The first lesson that I think of from it is the fact that man is frail. You can take the best man, he's still just man's best. Noah was a guy that was a righteous man, upright. was a preacher of righteousness in his day, the Bible tells us. And one of the top three, and he still fell into sin. He still had weaknesses. He still had a chink in the armor. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it warns us of that. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when we're trying to help other people out of struggles, we better be careful because we could fall to the same struggle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Even when we're standing, when we feel like we're strong, the Bible's telling us, take heed, be careful. Because sometimes in a celebration of our strength, we end up finding or stumbling onto our weakness. So we see that man is frail. We must be careful. Secondly, we also see that sin brings shame and judgment. Look at how Noah is honored. Noah is honored to be the guy out of all the world that God would deliver in this situation. Boy, talk about somebody that deserves respect. 
But what do we see him experience in this? He participates in this sin, and it brings shame. His moment of weakness is recorded for all of us for the next thousands of years. That's a bummer. I mean, I'm thankful that it's there because we can learn from it. We can grow from it. We can be strengthened. But Noah, what he participated in, it brings shame. And I don't mean necessarily just the wine itself. In fact, when we look at wine in the Bible, we see that there are some positive aspects to it as well. In Psalm chapter 104, verses 14 and 15, it says, uh, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So wine is often looked at in the Bible as a sign of prosperity and that things are going well. We have wine and we have bread and we have, and it said in, in this passage that it gladdens the heart of man and bread strengthens the heart of man. So when it talks about man it gladdening the heart of man, I don't think it's necessarily talking about getting towards drunkenness or anything like that. In fact, I'm certain it's not. I think it's talking about the way that it, it sustains us just the way that bread does. Bread doesn't impact us in some kind of way like that. And so I don't think that's what he's referring to with it in this passage either. And so wine in and of itself is not an issue. It's the abuse of that. Proverbs chapter 31, it gives us the warning of the abuse of alcohol. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. There's another passage in the Bible, I think it's in number 6, it points out that people making strong vows before God should not have anything to do with wine. And then it says kings shouldn't have anything to do with wine. The New Testament says pastors shouldn't have anything to do with it. You need to keep your head about you. A king will end up forgetting the things that he needs to be remembering. He'll end up perverting justice for the people that are counting on him for that justice. This ought to apply to a lot more than just, than just them. And here's the reason. Your life is too important for any kind of drunkenness to be any part of it. Your life is too valuable. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, look, it's not for kings to drink wine. Let the people that need to forget their life have it. In other words, if your life ain't worth anything, then you'd get drunk and forget your life. But it's not for you. It's not for the king. And the Bible's not even encouraging the use there. This is just a loving person telling the king, look, your life is too important to go dabbling with this stuff. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In Proverbs 23, it says, Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of the eyes, those who tarry long over the wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies at the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Kind of describes pretty vividly a drunken experience there. Being on top of the mast and waving around. And, and what do we use the term? Feeling no pain. That person's feeling no pain. Because it's exactly what it says within the passage here. And it drives this experience. As you go through all that, you take these wounds and these beatings and you'll what? Get up and go do it again. Your life is more valuable than that. In the New Testament, it tells us in Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Bible makes a connection between alcohol abuse and nakedness that those things often go hand in hand. 
When we abuse alcohol, our inhibitions break down. And we do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. And our sinful nature is strengthened under the influence of alcohol. And we give in to things that we shouldn't be involved in. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, it says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Those things often go hand in hand. And that's exactly what happened with Noah. Noah experienced the alcohol abuse. He experienced the, the, the breakdown of his inhibitions that came with it. And it led to his shame. That's why also when we see in Ezekiel in chapter 16, God describes himself as taking away the nakedness of Israel. He says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so God says, you know what, you were in your nakedness, and I made my covenant with you, and I covered you, I covered your nakedness, I clothed you, you became mine. Just looking forward to what we find in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see the the parallel that's there? He starts off saying, look, we're all going to stand before God, and because of the authority and the power of the Word of God, we stand before God completely open, naked, exposed. It's exactly why we need that high priest. Jesus Christ came and laid down His life for us. To take away our nakedness. goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam fell. Led to the recognition of nakedness. Noah falls. Leads to more nakedness. God comes to take away our nakedness with His covenants. With His covenant relationships with us. And that's what we get to experience today. Jesus Christ paid the price on that cross for us. To take away our nakedness. To clothe us in His righteousness before God. We see a hint of that in this passage. And that is in the word that God uses for himself when he blesses Shem. Notice it isn't a direct blessing of Shem. It's a blessing that comes to Shem from his, through his God. Abraham says, blessed be the God of Shem, the Lord. And the word that he uses there for the Lord is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's his name by which he enters into a covenant with his chosen people. So it gives us just a little glimmer of the covenant relationship that we would get to have in Christ that would take away our naked situation before God, that would clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. And so the last thing that we see, the sovereignty of God. Because we're seeing a theme here that's developing in the book of Genesis. The blessings and cursings and blessings and cursings. It just keeps happening. And what do we find? We find that God is sovereign in his blessing and his cursing. Well, we see that also in Romans. This is talking about Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, this is the mother of the two, the twin boys, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. You see the point that he's making there? Is that God chose, God's sovereign purpose in election would stand. Before they were ever born, before either of them ever did anything good or bad, God already chose, Jacob I will love, Esau I will hate. The very next thing it says in that Romans passage, I will bless whom I will bless and I will curse whom I will curse. When we look at these decisions that God makes and the sovereignty that he exercises, we see that he's always just, he's always right, he's always holy. Because God pronounces the curse upon Canaan and look at how horrible Canaan's descendants become and the land of Canaan ends up becoming like the world during Cain's time. The passage is confusing, there's no doubt about it. It does deal with some difficult issues that are hard to wrestle with, but I think that we can come to some answers. Man is definitely frail, we've got to be careful. When we think we're strong, we better be careful because we can fall. The shame and the judgment that sin can bring into our life and then God is sovereign. 